Hello and welcome to the Aquarius Podcast. I'm your host, Randy Reed. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by none other than Aquarium Co-op. So head on over to AquariumCoop.com. Check out all the great stuff on the website. The super healthy plants got a great selection right now, which of course is time relevant. We're always working to keep all the plants that we carry in stock as much as we can. But these are definitely challenging times. And just right now in this little bit of time, we've got a lot of our plant species in stock right now. Looking great. Go check those out. A couple quick exciting announcements. Again, very time relevant, but hopefully if you're listening to this in the future, nothing will have changed as far as availability. But the Zis brine shrimp hatcher, the Artemia blender, we have in stock. We've got a great number of them available that uh, we brought over from Zis in uh, South Korea. And this thing is the premium, the best brine shrimp hatcher on the market. I run anywhere from two to three of these things at a given time, uh, just so I can have a great supply of brine shrimp hatching at any given moment when I need it. So jump on the website, grab one of those if you haven't already, or grab two if you're in a fish room and you just kind of need that cycle again, or three if you're super crazy like I am. And also, long-awaited, long-overdue, a 60-count pack of root tabs. That's right. The easy root tabs now come in a 60-count pack in addition to the 20-count that's already available. So head on over again, www.aquariumcoop.com. Now, on to the interview. Today's date is Friday, August 7th, 2020. My guest today is Rosario Lacorte, legend in our hobby, and the person the Nematobrycon Lacordi, a.k.a. the Rainbow Tetra, is named after. And now Rosario is the second-time guest on the podcast. So thanks for coming on again, Rosario. Sure, you're welcome. <laughs> you forgot the Coral Lacordi. What, oh, I forgot another one. Which, which is the other one? Maritacora Lacordi. That's a killie that uh, my Brazilian friends and I uh, found in Central Brazil. In 1989. Uh, Maritacora? Maritacora. Yeah, there's a picture in the book. All right, I'm pulling this it up. It comes from a, play, a, little, a little village called Atahuana. It's in the, um, it's in the Araguaia Basin. Yeah, I'm looking at it now on, uh, on fishbase.se, and yeah, that's a pretty fish. So you've got yeah, two fish. Know. You've got two fish named after you. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, people people know that listen to this podcast that I hold like to me that's like the the ultimate achievement, and I hope it's not something from like an ego perspective, but it's just like you've made a mark. Um, and I know there's some people that have fish named after them that are a little controversial, but nonetheless, like you've made a significant impact in some form or another for somebody to describe a species and then name it after you, and to to have two or three or, or multiple fish species named after you. I mean, for you having two is just it, awesome. It's just fantastic. Uh, Rosario, that's nice. It's a nice feeling. Yeah, I hope I hope somebody names a fish after Joe. Yeah, Joe deserves it. He's he's quite a guy. He's uh, I couldn't ask for a better friend, really. Yeah, he he's so awesome, and the way that he talks about you, you know, it's it's yeah. he, he never talks about himself, but he's like, oh, the the very first time I, I met and talked to Joe and went to his house, he's like you got to talk to Rosario, you got to talk to Rosario, and I'm thinking this guy's not going, Rosario's not going to want to do anything with me, and he's able to orchestrate it so that you know I pull you away from the Zoom Ed booth and you come over to the hotel room and we do like an you know 30, 45 minute hour long interview and, and head back to aquatic experience, and that was just that was just a fantastic the uh, you know thing that he was willing to go on it on a limb to recommend me to you and for you to take a chance and actually do the interview with me was amazing it was 52 minutes (laughs) oh 52 minutes nice (laughs) 
two minutes. Yeah, it was nice. I, I listened to it a few times. Well, I want to go back and just, you know, God, what was that, two years ago now? I want to go back and tell people that, you know, if you haven't read, whether it's through a library or digital download, or you just haven't gone to Amazon and bought it, An Aquarius Journey by Rosario Lacord. I brought my copy from home that you signed. Yep. To Randy, best wishes, best wishes, Rosario. Yep, so I've got a signed copy from you that I picked up. Uh, read like half the book or three-quarters of the book on the way home on yeah, the flight talk- from uh, from New Jersey. And it's just, it's phenomenal. You've got full-color illustrations. You've got black and white where, they're, where it's appropriate for a historical photo. And, I mean, there's, you know, you've got a ton of written content in here about your experiences and what you've done. But you've got so much so much photography in here as well. Um, so it's not like it's just, it's just words and it's, it's, you know, I, I wanted to add a much more, uh, photography to it. I have a lot of pictures. I mean, I'm loaded with pictures on my computer and I don't allow, download everything off of my uh, digital camera and whatever I had, uh, and, and loaded on a computer. So I wanted much more photography added to the, to the uh, book, but Dan Radabaugh, who's the editor, he said, you know, Rosario, the more pictures we add to it the more the price is going to increase. And so it was a point that was well taken. Mm, you know, it might, might discourage people. But then again, colored pictures really make book attractive, you know? You know, this book, uh, so right now you've got five, uh, you've got 19 five-star reviews, or I guess your average rating is, is a full five stars. 19 people have have actually commented. Am I one of those? I'm going to feel real bad if I didn't actually get, I, I don't ever leave reviews, but I'm going to get on here and leave a review as well. I hope uh, I hope yeah. you see a, a little spike of, of people coming to Amazon and buying this book. It's it's only twenty nine fifty, and it, it, you know, it's, it's your story and your pictures, and you're one of the most impactful people in the hobby and it, it, it's just such a wonderful wonderful book and i'm, I'm gonna read it again um and i really hope people take take like five minutes it doesn't even take that long everybody's got the amazon app pull up your phone an aquarius journey by rosario lacord buy this thing you've got this handsome handsome gentleman posing on the cover add it to your cart buy now whatever you have to do get this book um and, and read it and i i can't imagine that if you are if somebody's an aquarist and you've got one, two, three, or a fish room, you're gonna appreciate this book. You really, really are, uh, and it's just such a such a great book. And yeah, and, and plus, I know Rosario is gonna tell me it's in the book, and I'm gonna need to flip and find the pictures of whatever he's talking about. So that's also why I brought it with me. No, one of the interesting things about uh, one of the contributors to the uh, review uh, was a young fella that uh, wrote about uh, hearing me speak. Back in the 60s, and his words were, as a precocious young kid. And you know, I remember it very vividly. Going, it was in an elementary school, and they were a lot of kids. In fact, the president of the society said, there's a lot of young people that they're really avid Aquarius. And they were really well-behaved. They really were. And I remember it just like it was yesterday. And I was so pleased that this guy, who is now an adult, and he probably has his own family. This is from about 1960, 61. He, he remembered that incident, and I do too. It was it was pretty interesting that this this kid remembered it and uh, took the time out to uh, write that little uh, review. So I appreciated it. That's awesome. Yeah, this guy. Yeah, this guy says Psalm speak at South uh, Jersey Aquarium Society as a, a besotted besotted kid in the '60s. He was revered then, and this book shows why. Superb. Re- re- oh man, this guy's dropping a word. I don't. Recontour. And great photos, most recontour, enjoy- no, recontour, 
That's the that's the California public education system right there in action right there. I can't. I, I don't know that well, word. Oh, um, no. <laughs> Most enjoyable book I've read in ages. That's a five stars, man. Yeah, that was. You know, I I, I grew up and was educated in the '30s and the '40s, <laughs> so I go back a little. I'm one of the relics. <laughs> yeah, I can't believe. Uh, you know, I, I've gone to higher education, but I look back on like my my middle school and junior high and high school years. And I'm like, man, how did how do they let me through? How do they let me through like that? Jeez Louise. Well, but, uh... you know, I never went to college either, so I don't have a formal education. But I think we got a much better education in those days. And one of the things that I really resent that they don't do today, they don't teach history. Boy, I think that's so important. Mm. And so history is one of the forgotten subjects that we have now. And I loved history, too, and I still do it today. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so enough uh, enough about our public education system, Rosario. We gotta we gotta get on track with the fish stuff. So first off, um, I sent you a little a little goodie care package. What did you? Uh, so what have you thought so far? You've had it for a couple days. Well, I used. It, I was really impressed with the uh, krill flakes. I thought they were pretty good. And I'm I'm like uh, a guy that really studies food. And if you read the book, I go back a long time and, into uh, really looking at ingredients and working with different foods to try to get the most out of your fish. And uh, I, I see you got some really good, and I think carotenoids are really important ingredients, and I think we discussed this in the first interview. And, uh, yep, I got that from your book, too. That that yeah. has that has stuck with me, and the carotenoids. Carot- yep. Yeah. yeah, carotenoids are really what affects the coloration in fish, and it excites your chromatophores, and that's what gives them a nice color. Of course, sunlight means a lot, too. You get fish. I've collected fish in black water. And you can't imagine the redness. I mean, they're so brilliant. But I think that may be due to the fact that they can't see each other that well. And in order to, uh, for the opposite of sexual attraction for spawning, maybe this is nature's way of intensifying the color in black water. Right. I've been in black water streams in southeastern Brazil that were so black. You put your hand in the water, you could you go down a few inches, you could hardly see your hand any longer. But when you collected the fish, boy, the colors were unbelievable. And they fooled, some of them fooled me. I couldn't identify them until I put them in the aquarium. And then I studied them. And the following day when they, they got a, their colors became a little more subdued, then I could identify, oh, that's such and such a fish. But they fooled me because they were so intense. So it means a lot. So... Uh, your krill food has, uh, I see they added paprika to it, and I'll tell you a little story about paprika. I had a lot of experience with paprika. I used that in my early days because in the 20s, the Germans discovered that uh, they were big canary raiders, just breeders, and they discovered by giving them uh, uh, paprika, once they shed their feathers and got a new batch of feathers, by feeding them paprika, they would turn orange. They would get more colorful. And uh, so I used that on some fish. I used it. My first fish that I experienced, experimented with were little Tetra von Rios back in the 50s. I was feeding them paprika right out of the, out of the jar. And they ate it. They ate it like crazy. And it did affect them. There's no question about it. They turned red. So I started to apply that to my foods. And then I, I investigated a little further. And I think I outlined this in a book. I think the story... And uh, James Atsu, Dr. James Atsu, was uh, one of the curators of uh, the New York Aquarium. And I know I knew him for over 50 years. He lived to be 96, I think 96 or 98. 
wonderful, wonderful man, a complete gentleman. And uh, we were discussing carotenoids and all that, and he told me that they were having problems with the flamingos in the Bronx Zoo, and then he discovered there was a company in St. Louis that produced a food that had, they were rich in carotenoids. I don't know what they used, but by feeding this food to the flamingos, they got their color back. And the reason why the flamingos have such beautiful pink colors in a while, their main diet is shrimp. Mm-hmm. They can eat shrimp, any kind of shrimp. And that's what colored them up. So uh, I, I asked him for the address of this company in St. Louis, and I wrote to him. And the president of the company answered me because he thought this was going to be another outlet. When I told him what I was doing, I would like to experience, experiment with some fish. He got very excited, and he sent me 10 pounds of this stuff. Oh, wow. Well, the fish, the fish, were, the fish weren't that crazy about it, so it was an experiment that didn't really work out too well. But then I found out, you know, by, well, if you feed a lot of Daphne, you get wild Daphne and you get Cyclops, that really colored the fish up too, and shrimp. So, uh, but I did got contact a company that made paprika oil, which they use, believe it or not, when they make butter, they add paprika oil to it, or, uh, or even carrot oil to give it color. So I got a whole gallon of carrot oil, and I got a gallon of paprika oil. I forget what I paid for it. I still have the letters from the 19, early 1960s where I corresponded with the people that owned the company. I think, I think the company was from California, as a matter of fact. And I used that stuff for years. I used to mix it in my uh, beef art when I used to feed beef art. Now I don't believe in beef art anymore. Although the discus breeders love to use it, and uh, they do. I mean, the fish will grow fast and big. But you have to realize that beef art is a uh, meat, and it's not for cold-blooded animals. Fish are cold-blooded, and they don't really have a way to process that. And by feeding a lot of that beef art, there's naturally fat in it, and they'll get fat around their reproductive organs, and they get pretty fat. So I don't use beef art anymore. Well, I don't have that much anyway. As you know, as our, we had our private discussion, I'm not as my... Uh, Setup is not as large as it used to be. I used to have 200 tanks. Now I'm, uh, I have, I probably have 80, 90 tanks yet. So for a guy that's almost 90, <laughs> it's not. You don't have that many. You have 80 to 90. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, but I don't have. From what I you were, yeah. The lower ones, I don't really have much in them uh. anymore. I can't, I can't bend down that well anymore, and, and to reach, I won't reach up anymore. That's that's a no-no. Yeah. I could lose my balance, you know. I've I've almost fallen off a ladder in my own fish room a couple times. It's uh, it's it's no joke. No, it isn't a joke. So I I have to be very careful, you know. And in fact, I probably even shouldn't have fish anymore. Although there's guys older than me that kept fish. I mean, I'll probably have them until uh, I'm I'm no longer around. But <clears throat> I uh, I still love them. You know, I still have a big interest. In them. I don't get around like I used to, and I really miss. There's some great stuff coming out of Africa, and I don't see it anymore. I only see it on video and on the Internet, and some of the stuff is really great. And I did a lot of work with African fish. I spawned a lot of them. I think I was the first one to really mass breed uh, the, uh, the uh, what was the name, Cordolestes paterzius, which is a yellowfin, uh, 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 what do they call that? Yellowfin Congo tetra. Cotomaculatus, no Cotomaculatus. Anyway, I'm starting to get mixed with my names. Anyway, I raised a lot of them back in the uh, 50s. And uh, 
they're very interesting. Most of the tetras that I worked with, I worked with a lot of garrisons. They usually hatch out in a day, but the Africans are quite different. They, uh, they'll take four or five days to, to develop. And you can actually see the embryo develop, and, and it takes like eight days before they actually pop out, but then they become free swimming. So they're quite different, but the egg is quite big, and you can see them swimming inside the egg, actually. You see them moving around. Hey, Rosario, can, can you help me understand more, uh, in, in, and this is my, my frame of reference, right? So not a lot of people outside of very, very specialist hobbyists that do it just because they like the Tetras um, seem to work with, with kerosens in their fish rooms. So for you back then, and having been to a couple different farms uh, where they're you know breeding neon tetras and seeing some videos overseas of how they do cardinals and neons, you know the whole pairing of a male female, putting them in a separate plastic dish, letting them do their spawning, and then typically once you get those eggs in, and I'm guessing they hatch out at some point, they then move them to these two, three, four, five thousand gallon outdoor setups for you operating a home-based fish room and i think that's what part of what makes your legend so awesome is that you were basically doing this still at, at a home scale but you just did it so successfully so what was it for you to continue to work with kerosens and was it that you just found kind of the secret sauce of how to get them to breed and you know at scale so you're producing more than just a handful at a time well you know i go back into the uh, early 50s probably about 53 and in 54, I was starting to raise a lot of neons, and that was a time when we hardly knew anything about it. And if you go back in the early days of the Aquarium Magazine and Aquarium Journal, everyone that ever wrote an article about Neon Tetra Boy, everyone devoured it because that was a fish that was so exciting to see. I mean, when you stop to think of it, it wasn't really much of a selection when you went to a pet shop to really get a, an exciting tetra. So when a neon tetra came along, in 1936-37, I mean, it was mind-boggling because I, know, I didn't see my first neon until after World War II. It was around 1946, and I was, how old was I then? I was uh, about 15 years old. I saw my first neon, and they were going for uh, $6 each. Wow. Right after the war. And that's not adjusted and, for inflation, right? That's just uh, 6 bucks back then. <laughs> No, I, I, my father at that time, my father was working for, for General Electric as a uh, janitor. Of course, he was up in age. That was a sideline because my father was a shoemaker by trade. He did that. He learned that in Italy. And he was a very good shoemaker, but he did this as a sideline, you know, to get the benefits and all. But he was only making like $20 a week. Wow. That's hey. Well, when I got married in 1951... I was a wood pattern maker as an apprentice, and I was taking home $33 a week. And I was, we were married. I mean, that shows you the kind of money. So $6, man, that's like a third of my pay. I couldn't afford that. So uh, it, was, it was exciting. When I saw the Neon Tetra for the first time in 1946, of course, I wasn't married then. But when I first saw my first Neon, I mean, I, my mind was blown away. Said, How could a fish be so gorgeous? And it was. So, uh, I think it was in, uh, I first got some of the neons when the price started to come down a little bit. I think I got my first neons, and I don't even remember how I got them, or where I bought them, or did I, somebody give them to me, or did I buy, I don't remember. But it was in the uh, 50s, 53, somewhere like that. 
And my water was very, I was living in Elizabeth and we had wonderful water. It came from the Wanake Reservoir up in North Jersey. The water was very soft. The conductivity was probably about 70 microsiemens, something like that. And they were just breeding on me like that. I, I, I learned how to read tetras and I, so I tried it on them. For the first time, I threw them in a tank, a pair of, actually, I remember filling up a tank right out of tap. And the next day, I had, I had an air stone in it. And the next day, I threw a pair of neons in it, and they spawned Wow! in, in a few hours. I said, wow, this isn't so hard. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what happened. And they take about 24 hours to hatch, depending on temperature, you know. But uh, they hatch in 24 hours, and then... It takes another three or four days for them to become free swimming. And everybody was saying, oh, you got to use their finest food. And I happened to throw some brine shrimp in their tank just for the heck of it. And I looked and I said, wow, I says, they got, they got bellies on them, orange bellies. They must be eating the shrimp. So some of the tetras, they might be small, but you might be full. They can eat newly hatched brine shrimp. But we were using, in those days, we, we were using the, uh, the shrimp that came out of uh, San Francisco Bay. It was the price was pretty cheap. We used to get San Francisco uh, Artemia, and I think the, the San Francisco Aquarium Society handled it through their, their societies. So they were the ones that sold it, and uh, so their shrimp is smaller than the uh, Artemia that comes out of Salt Lake. Right, right. I've heard that. So we, and we used to get a whole gallon for ten dollars. Can you imagine? Wow. I mean, it was amazing, and. Uh, so from there, I started raising a lot of the untouchers. I had people. In those days, the parakeets were the big hit in the country for pets. Everybody wanted parakeets. There was a craze on parakeets. I had people that wanted, just let me have a pair of those neons. I'll give you a pair of parakeets. That's how bad they wanted them. <laughs> Par- parakeet the bird, right? Not like a, yeah, okay, yeah. wow. Yeah, the little parakeets. Yeah, that was a big craze in those days. And then. And then the next craze was uh, chinchillas. Oh, yeah, you raise, you get a chinchilla. It might cost you $1,000 for a chinchilla, but you had to, you had to brush them down. Their skin had to, their fur had to be just so they couldn't be knotted. For you to get a, re- a return on your investment, you had to take care of the fur. So and that didn't last too long. I had a friend that uh, was pretty well-to-do, and he bought a pair of chinchillas, and he was going to set the world on fire Well. <laughs> you're gonna set, yeah there ain't not too many guys setting the world on fire doing these this pet stuff you know yeah they did so but now they got they got neon tetras down pretty well uh i had a friend by the name of i forget his last name his name was budgie he had a big wholesale place up in north jersey and he was a good friend he used to buy a lot of my uh excess stuff and in those days if you brought in uh, imported a lot of fish from the far east uh, of course, you use a, a, a specific airline. Uh, the airline would give you a, a, a free pass to go anywhere you wanted in the world. Wow! He got a free ticket because he brought so much food, you know, fish in from the Far East. So he got a free ticket to go to the Far East. So he went to the Far East and he wanted to see how they bred some of the uh, discus and all that. And so he told me a lot about it. He says they, with the with the neons, they had a dark room, and the temperature was cool. And I do, they do like cool temperatures. And the reason for that, they come from forest. It's a forest fish, so they're, they're going to be cooler. And uh, they set one pair at a time. So they might set up 100 pairs. Just like, did you see that, uh, that uh, there was a video on that place in Israel? I think you saw that, didn't you? 
There was a video, pretty good video, on a, a, an operation in, in Israel where they raised beautiful guppies. Yeah, that was, a, yeah that's, that's an aquarium co-op video that Corey shot. Yeah. yeah. And then I have uh, then I have a, a a room just for the cardinals and the mm -hmm. neon tetras. Yep, yep. And really knocked them out. So and they, yeah, they set them up in pairs, and within 24 hours or so, usually two days, they'll spawn. And then you take the pair out. Actually, you can actually even you can actually even collect the eggs. You're not going to hurt the eggs if you in the figure eight motion. You can take the eggs out and put them in another uh, container, you know, or another tank if you want to do it that way. You don't have to tie the tank up. I've done that many times. I've taken eggs away and placed them in another aquarium where I might have spawned a few things, and I just put all the eggs together. So, but you know what's nice about the Carisons? They're so much. They're more of a challenge. Everybody's into cichlids, and the cichlids are really nice, but they usually have a pattern. They're either mouth brooders or they lay rocks, eggs on a rock. But you stop and look at what the Carisons. There's a lot of Carisons that have really very peculiar spawning modes of reproduction. You got the Copena Arnaldi that jumps out of the water and they put their eggs on a leaf. Oh, geez. And the female swims away and the male stays underneath that leaf. And every once in a while, he'll splash and throw water on the eggs. And they, and they develop right on I mean, that was a strategy that's really quite interesting. And then, of course, then you have other tetras that spawn on rocks. And you have some tetras that spawn like angelfish at an angle. You can spawn them on a slate. Uh, there's so many different strategies that Carisons use. They're a very interesting group of fish. And they present a little bit more of a problem or a little bit more of a challenge, I should say, for anybody that uh, wants to breed fish. They're more challenging than, I think, any other group of fish as far as I'm concerned. Did you now... Did you focus so much on the Kerasons back then because it was a challenge? Or maybe it's a combination. So it's part challenge, but it's also part, like you're saying, it's just so new and exciting that, you know, to me talking about it in 2020, you know, the Neon Tetra, we take it for granted, basically. We're back, like you're saying, like when you first saw these fish in the, what, 30s and 40s, it's just a completely yeah. different thing that you've never seen before so you know there's the there's the price motivation so they're not you know they're not being bred overseas in southeast asia um at a mass scale yet at this point they're they're probably all being wild wild caught right and so there was an right. opportunity for you to actually you know enjoy this fish have the challenge it's incredibly beautiful and then you've actually got a little bit of financial incentive to man if i can actually breed these things people want them and i could yeah. i can yeah. i can sell them yeah that's right well, tetras, you know, uh, have big spawns anyway. Mm -hmm. And uh, in the beginning, when I was in a hobby, the only thing we had available were guppies and swordtails and platies, really. There were nothing much mollies. As far as tetras are concerned, maybe you would see a little tetra von Rio. Black tetras were very popular. Uh, Glow-like tetras. And well, a lot of stuff came out of British Guiana. Because that was the big uh, export place, too. That was... They, they collected a lot of fish from British Guiana, and it was so close to Florida, they could fly right there to Florida and then be redistributed throughout the country. So, uh, you know, there wasn't... Uh, once the war was over, and then uh, some of these farmers, fish farmers in Florida, they had the availability to buy some of the planes that were uh, all the aircraft, like B-25s. Uh, I know... Uh, in Vero Beach, the uh, what was the name of that company? Uh, I used to know everybody there. Paramount. Paramount had a, a B twenty five that they used to go down to 
to South America. I don't know if they had a couple planes or what. Wow, and that was that was a that was a fish farm in Florida. Actually, was so yeah, invested yeah, in a hobby that yeah. they had a plane. Or yeah, two? Par- yeah, par- yeah, Paramount. And wow. uh, you know Fred Koshu. I don't know if you ever heard of Fred Koshu. He's got a number of fish named him. He had a big farm. He's no longer. He's a real old timer. And his brother-in-law uh, ran the operation up in Paramount. And I knew his brother-in-law very well. And uh, so I used to go up there and I used to sell them fish from time to time. They had a very nice operation. And they were Germans. And uh, eventually they went out of business. I don't remember why, but I guess from their age, they just got old and couldn't do it anymore. And I think Fred Koshu had a heart attack. And he was very close friends with Ross Sokolov. But uh, so a lot of these guys had planes. You know, some people had bigger planes and they could bring larger amounts of fish in. But the... Uh, but the export business and import business was really great, and there was a lot of people in it. And now, there's only a few farms left in Florida. Mm-hmm. There's not many left. It really took a bad hit. So I don't know what's going to happen, but the hobby is still strong, although I know uh, one fellow up in New England, he says his business has been greater than ever right now because, you know, I guess the virus, people are locked in their house. They don't have anything to do. So the, the hobby got a little bit of an influx there. It's a uh, yeah, and it, it's a it's a very tragic thing. And you know, I don't like the idea of anybody profiting on you know a, a pandemic or you know anything like that. But it's it is a it is a positive for the hobby that people are at home. They're going on YouTube and you know they're they're finding things that they can do in their home and engage their children. And so it's it's good that we have more people coming into the hobby. But, you know, it's, it's, I really hope that these people are finding good outlets for information. They're finding good content to help them be successful. And, you know, it's more than just, you know, something to help them pass these, these couple months of, of home isolation. And hopefully it really takes root. Like it takes root at the family level. Like, man, this, this aquarium thing is actually really cool. And when life returns to normal, they still have that same passion for it. And hopefully it grows from there. Um, so that, that, that's my only concern is that I just hope people don't, you know, burn, burn bright and burn out fast. You know, I, I hope that they can, you know, treat this hobby kind of like a marathon, you know, it's a, it's a long-term thing and hopefully they just enjoy it and see the beautiful, you know, the beautiful side of the hobby and keeping a community tank in your, in your living room or, or whatnot. Yeah. It's soothing too. I mean, you know, you get tired of looking at TV or, or going on the internet and it's soothing just to sit in front of a tank and watch the fish dart around and feed on different things. And, uh, it's another outlet, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, definitely. And I, I want to circle back with the uh, with the the fish food that we were talking about because I, I want some people are probably wondering like what food are they talking about? Others are going to know right off the get go. So I sent you Rosario. It's just you know my appreciation for kind of walking me through some some blue Galeris and uh, and whatnot stuff in my fish room, which hopefully we can get to talk about here. But I sent you some extreme krill flakes, uh, some extreme of the the slow sinking pellets extreme nano and I, and I had to send I had to take the opportunity to send you one of our aquarium co-op uh, sponge filters and a in a Zis airstone those are like five of our you know premium best selling products that we have and I I live and live and die by that krill flake that is just actually the the krill flake and the slow sinking pellets are probably aside from baby brine shrimp and fro- frozen bloodworms are my absolute staples. Um, the blue, the blue Galeris go crazy over the krill flake. Um, the slow sinking, the slow sinking pellets are a, a, a major staple for my Corydoras and also my bristlenose too, because there's spirulina in that. 
Um, so I just absolutely love those foods and knowing, knowing how much of a food junkie you are. And I also sent Joe a little care package with that stuff too, which I think, uh, I think Anita made him make, she made him make it stay on like the, in the garage for like three days before he could touch the box. But, uh, he loved, he loved the food too. Yeah, no, we talked about Joe did tell me about it. I told him that (laughs) we did discuss it. Yeah. He was pretty impressed with it. It's the krill is the krill food is really great. I mean, I, the fish went wild. For I have a big tank full of Hyphesa uh, brycom wadai. I don't know if you're familiar with that fish. It's a blueberry tetra. Maybe that will uh, make an impact on your memory. Are you familiar with that? The blueberry tetra? Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to pull it up oh. on uh, Google right now. Well, yeah, I have I have a, a large tank. I don't know if it's a 35 high or water or 40 high. And uh, I have some cuttings that I put in there of a, a plant called Costas fissilugala. Uh, no, I can't remember the last name. It's a, a tongue twister. Anyway, two of my friends went to uh, West Africa and they collected, uh, they were in, interested in plants, terrestrial plants. And he brought some cuttings back and he raised them and I, he gave me two cuttings and I gave the best one to my son-in-law as a greenhouse. Uh, well, evidently he didn't take too, care, too, too uh, well care of it. And eventually he had petered away and died. So I said, well, I got to do something with one I have. So I decided to put it in the fish tank because I have philodendrons all over my fish room. I've been doing that for 60, 70 years with the philodendrons. They're all in my tanks. And so I uh, I put it in a tank, and boy, it took off. If mm. you were to see this tank, it looks like all bamboo in here. And, and the, the plant's like six foot in diameter. It grew out of the water. Oh, wow. It's a flowering the flowering ginger doesn't have a fragrance. I brought a ginger back from South America, which is in a book. And uh, I planted it outside because I planted it next to my basement, which I think the heat from the winter months prevents it from freezing. I, I don't understand. And it comes back every year. This is a tropical plant. And I'm, I'm, I'm in a northern temperature, you know, temperate area, which is it gets pretty cold here. Every year it comes up, and every August, and now the week or so, I'll start getting blooms, and it has a beautiful, fragrant flower on it. You should send, me a, you should send yeah. me a picture of that. Yeah, it's in a book anyway. I don't want to repeat it. So <laughs> What's a, what, do you know what page it's on? Because I'll pull it up right now. Uh, no, I don't. Oh, it's, that would be awesome if you knew it off the top of your head. Uh, that would have that would have been next-level Rosario. <laughs> I should put some markers in there. I, I don't think you can miss it, though. It's a picture of a... Beautiful flower. Mm. The flower only lasts a day, but it comes on a crown. It's like a canna lily. Mm. And they open up each day, and it'll last for a couple of weeks. And the fragrance just your socks off. Mm-hmm. Um, have you ever kept uh, – so this this is one that I'm really enjoying, and I've probably had them now for going on a year. Uh, Hyphesa Bacron, let's see here. Where is their – Alates? Uh, Alaches. Elecase. Elecase. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, uh, yeah, uh, I had them years ago. I never did anything with them. I don't think I had many, and I don't remember too much of what I did with them. You know, sometimes I, I'd get fish, and i never get around to spawning them. So I may have spawned it, and I may not. I don't know. I can't give you a definitive answer. Well, the- That one time I had, in, when I had my last house, I had a, you know, a three-car garage with skylights in there. I had orchids in there and philodendrons all over the place. And I even had a poinciata bloom for me. And... Uh, I, uh, what was I going to say? What am I getting to? 
I forget what my train of thought. <laughs> well, I'll I'll hijack it. So the the reason I brought that one up is you remi- you reminded me because you dropped the genus name Hyphesibracon, but oh, that, that's right. Elokes, yeah. Yeah, that that uh, fish, I I have that because the common name for it is the Reed Tetra. So my last name being Randy Reed, and I, I just felt like such a goofball that I'm like, man, if this thing's kind of got my name in it, like I feel like I need to have it. So I ordered some up, uh, and they've only been on the fish list for this one wholesaler once or twice before. Uh, I, I think I got a group of maybe 20 of them or 24, and I absolutely love them. They're they're they've got. A very very subtle look to them. They've got these little white, uh, a couple white dots on their on their caudal fin. A beautiful slight blue iridescent sheen all over the body. Lovely short but but kind of a long flowy finage. And I've I've really enjoyed having this fish. And well, you know um, that fish was described by Marilyn Weitzman. You know, Stan Weitzman was in, in fact he wrote the forward to my book. And Stan was oh. one of our preeminent ichthyologists world. Yeah, yeah. Famous. And he was a curator of fishes at the Smithsonian, and his his wife Marilyn was interested in some of those miniature species, and she described that fish. In fact, I think if you look it up, you'll see it'll say Weitzman on on the, next to it. She was the describer. Oh wow! She's, what what is Alachis? Uh, what what's the, is that like a region down there? Uh, I don't remember what it was now. Uh, I can't remember. It could have been named for some specific thing that's particular fish had a uh, that reminded maybe uh, a big fan or something i don't remember what it was mm-hmm. have to look it up well anybody I listening can, to this if you ever I get a chance remember, you know yeah i can't remember everything <laughs> <laughs> well i was gonna say anybody listening to this if you ever get a chance to keep a group of this uh, high fessa laches i i'm personally very thrilled and and very happy with them and i think the next time they're available i'll probably order up uh, some more to to really fill out my 75 gallon planted tank in my uh, in my front room yeah, as a matter of fact, if my memory serves me correctly, they're from Uruguay, so it's uh, they can say take some pretty cool temperatures. Yeah, uh, I, I wouldn't be surprised if if you have an outdoor pond, you could probably keep them outdoors if you don't have a severe winter. You know, if it doesn't go below, uh, uh, let me see, forty five or something like that. Because you know they get ice down there. I uh, I've been in areas in southern southeastern Brazil. Uh, I think the year before when I was there with Sam Weitzman, because we were together on a a grant from Geographic, and we spent six weeks in, in Brazil. And um, the coffee got hit pretty hard down there. And we saw all the coffee, uh, uh, you know, bushes or whatever you want to call them, they were really hit pretty hard. And that's why there was a big uh, uh, drought on coffee. We couldn't get coffee. The price skyrocketed because of that. Because they do get ice down here sometimes, even in southern, southeastern Brazil, in Uruguay in particular. Mm. They're further south. You know, on the note of temperature, what? And I know you've had a couple different. Uh, from reading the book, you had like a, a an old wood stove, I think, at one point, in one of your first fish rooms, and then you went yeah. to like a, a nicer, like a baseboard heating system. What yeah. temperature would you say you typically keep the fish room at, and what type of fluctuations do you see from well, you know, day to night? Well, when I had the uh, fish house in Elizabeth, I had uh, natural gas. I had a uh, baseboard radiation. And that was the new fish house when I expanded. I started off in a, a one-car garage. It was a three-car garage, and I, I partitioned it off. And, well, it's all in the book anyway. And uh, it's a pretty interesting story. I won't go through it again because it's, I outlined the whole thing in the, in, the, uh, in the bio. And I had a hot water, a little hot water, well, I guess a little pot-bellied stove. And I ripped the guts out and put a, a, a oil burner in there. And that's mm-hmm. what I had. 
and it used to get pretty warm in there. And then when I got the baseboard radiation, uh, I had uh, the tanks I had against the wall, the temperature used to go up to 80. And in the center of the racks, where the center, most of the tanks were, it would be about 75, 76. Now, since I'm in a basement, <clears throat> I have a, the most my temperature will ever get is about 72 degrees when I open the windows, right? Like now, you know, it's been pretty warm back here in New Jersey. And the warmest my tanks will get is 72, 73 when I open the windows because it's warm outdoors. And uh, in, the, in the wintertime, 69 is my average, 70. Mm. And that's why I did so well with Galeris. They, uh, <laughs> I like to raise them by the thousands. I don't want to because there's nowhere to, no way to get rid of them. Now, I know what he's going <laughs> to I can get them, but I don't ship and I don't bother. Yeah. I don't do that anymore. I, I just can't get involved. In so are so you... Just, no buzzer now, so I can't do what I used to. <laughs> so, do you shoot for? Do you try to maintain one consistent temperature throughout a twenty-four hour day cycle, or do you do you allow a, a fluctuation from you know daytime to uh, nighttime? The only fluctuation is if it happens, you know, from mm. the temperature outside. If it gets pretty cold and the furnace has to work a little harder, but uh, I, I had a couple of floods here already, you know, because I have I have a sump pump. And uh, some pump has failed because we had a loss of power. And I had, I already had a couple times, I think on three occasions maybe. Sandy was one of them. We had like 14 inches of water in the cellar. Oh, wow. But I didn't lose anything. Uh, I only lost fish one time. I don't know if it was Sandy or the one before that. And the reason for that is because some of the filters needed to be uh, cleaned out. And what happened was they were had they were compacted too much with organics, and you have to be very careful. And uh, I just couldn't get to it, uh, and I, I just had too much to do, and I couldn't get to clean those filters. But what happened was, once the airline was shut down, I was without power for ten days, and I, in fact, I had to stay at my son's house the one time, and uh, the second time that happened, I didn't lose anything because I knew the hurricane was coming. I knew we were going to have a, a power outage. I made sure the filters were all clean properly. But the first time, and I learned my lesson, this is someone you should think about, any of those people that listen to this podcast, if you anticipate a storm coming, make sure your filters are not compacted too strongly with organics because once the air shuts down, anaerobic bacteria takes over and then the ammonia comes in and kills, can kill a whole tank on you. Mm. Your tank is... If your filter is cleaned and it's not too compacted with organics, you'll you'll be fine if you lose air. Yeah, so. I'm just I'm just flipping through the book right now because you brought up the uh, you brought up the blue Glarus and that was that was really what kicked off you and I uh, reconnecting. You still there, Rosario? Yeah, I'm here. Can okay. you hear me? Yeah, I can, I can hear you. So for everybody that doesn't know why I'm why I'm asking is uh, I've got Rosario on FaceTime right now. I can see him, but I had to turn off my camera uh, just due to latency. You know, going, going the signal going across from uh, Washington to New Jersey, I don't think it could handle having me also sharing my video. Too many people streaming Netflix and Disney Plus, I guess. Um, yeah, there might be power outages too. Yeah, or yeah, that's that's a good point too. <laughs> yeah. So the the reason you and I we, we got connected is I reached out to Joe for Denzi just on some advice about blue blue Galeris, knowing how much of a killy guy he is. So I recently picked up, and I've shared this a bit um, 
I, I wanted to start keeping blue Galaris. Um, and, um, you know, so I'm like, okay, I think I'm pretty sure Joe's got some. Maybe he can send me some, but just due to right now that, uh, you know, he's kind of on, on home restriction right now. He doesn't want to go out. Uh, he wasn't able to, to send me any, which is no worries at all. I found on Aquabid, somebody in Wisconsin or Minneapolis, wherever it was, they were selling some blue Galaris low, uh, collection point low eggs. So I bought 30 of those. And I know just from past conversations that Joe said that these can be a tricky killy fish or they can be tough. And so I figured, why not? Let, let's take a crack at it. Um, I ended up getting the eggs, uh, let them incubate for the seven to eight week period. They shipped in peat moss. So I left them in that. I actually got a little bit, um, you know, true to my nature. I got impatient and I took 10 of the eggs early and tried to hatch them. They all failed, and so I had 20 eggs left, and then I let them go the full seven to eight weeks, and then I put them in the little dish um, to, to hatch out, and I only got two, I think, I think of the 20, I got like two to hatch out naturally, and then the remaining ones, I ended up doing, uh, I was getting worried about it after a couple days, and so I put them in a vial, and this was from uh, what I had heard from Gary Lang, is I put them in a vial, uh, filled the vial up with a little bit of water, and then took that vial and put it all the way down at the bottom of my 75-gallon, and or it was either a 40-breed or a 75-gallon, and I un, you know, undid the, the lid a little bit to let air pressure rush in, and sure enough, like the remaining half then hatched out, put those away, and then the, the rest that didn't hatch out, I walked around a bit with the, uh, with the vial in my pocket, and then those went ahead and hatched. So I ended up getting you know, a decent number that hatched out. I think I lost one after that to uh, unsecure lid. So everybody remember, if you're keeping killifish, make sure your lid is 100% sealed or they'll find a way out. Um, so now I've got a decent, and it's actually a pretty good 50-50 split between males and females. So now yeah. I've got, I've got uh, killifish I raised up on uh, brine shrimp that they went crazy over, uh, moved them over to a grow-out 15-gallon, and then I've since split them out as I could tell male-female differences. And so now I've got these tanks with, you know, one female here, one male there, and I'm getting ready to breed them. And I really don't know what to do. So I reached out to Joe and that's where he connected me with Rosario. And I'm like, ah, I don't want to bug Rosario, but you know, Rosario, you, you've been more than happy to, to talk to me about it. And you know, you, kind oh, yeah. of, you gave me some excellent, excellent pointers on what I should do with my blue, uh, blue Galaris. Yeah, this is what I do. I, I uh, and I did this with the low too. I, I raised quite a few of those. Uh, what I, I have a 20 gallon tank downstairs, which is uh, in a basement, of course. And uh, what I do is I, I get so darn many eggs, I'm not going to be playing around with shoe boxes. And I have a better control if I put them in a 20-gallon tank. Uh, I'd, I would say the water is about uh, 10 inches in height. I don't know if it makes – I don't think it really makes much of a difference. And I have a filter going on in there so the water remains nice and clear. And I have a biological filter working at all times. That's important. A certain amount of eggs are going to go bad. There's no question about it. They're infertile, so they're bad. So I just let them go, and I let that tank bubble. And I, after about a month's time, I might scoop some. I never put them over peat. I just don't bother with that. I, I found out you don't have to do that. And this is just a straight bare bottom tank, right? That you just drop the bare eggs in. Tank, yeah. And I might have some peat moss in the bottom just to give it a little acidity. And then I'll scoop some out after a month or so, and I'll. Uh, I'll, I'll look at them, you know, with a lamp underneath the shoebox and check it and see what the embryos are like. If I start seeing a lot of them embryonated, they're ready to pop, this is what I do. I then put them in a shoebox and I get a peat pellet. You know what the peat pellets are? You get them in any uh, garden supply center. They're little peat pellets. They People usually put seeds in them or plants. 
they, they come, they're compressed. Mm-hmm. If you put them in water, they break open. They're in a, in a, uh, a gauze cloth. But what you're looking for is the tannins. And I noticed in, in Brazil, you know, when these things are dried out in these ponds, some ponds don't dry out. I think I told you, I collected white eye in 1958. That pond never dries out. In fact, that's the pond that General White discovered white eye. And I went back there. I was I visited that pond twice uh, over a period of 20 years apart. And I don't know if the pond is there yet. But I don't. Th- I think it's too far out. I don't think they're going to do any building there. But you can never tell. But anyway, I use that peat pellet, and it has tannins in it. And a tannic acid is what's important. That's what pops them out. And that's what happens in the wild. When the rains return, a lot of these places had uh, plants that died. They dried up because of the dry season. And then when it rains, that tannins come in and back in the water. And it's an important part of, of, of causing them to hatch. And the tannins are very important. I, I don't think pe- people realize how important tannic acid is to a lot of fish. Not only that, but some kerosens without tannic acid, they may not even hatch out properly or not even develop properly. So this is a good way and a cheap way to do it rather than put it in your pocket. I know that's been around, but if you get a 500 eggs, you're going to put them in your pocket, walk around with them. <laughs> I'd get a fanny pack. I'd get a fanny pack at that point. It's easy to put them in a big tank. If you get large numbers yeah. and you have a filter going on in there, it's the water's constantly clear. You don't have to use Acroflavin. I don't use any, I don't use Acroflavin. I use, I don't use methylene blue. What eggs are going to go bad are going to go bad. I leave them in a tank and I bubble it. The water is nice and clear. And then check it periodically to see what the development stage is. And when you see they're ready to pop out, then you put them in a shoebox. No air. Just drop a peat pellet in there. You'll see inside of a couple hours, it'll all be out. I actually, while while you've been talking, I've been multitasking. I went ahead and uh, preemptively ordered my peat pellets on Amazon. (laughs) So let's see. Make sure when you get the peat pellets, I have to warn you, Uh make sure you get peat pellets. Without fertilizer in it, they have to be peat pellets, period, and no fertilizers. It looks like these it's are like natural peat pellets. I th- okay. Yeah. That's, I, that's I important. Yeah, I don't see any. Yeah, Not so any with fertilizers. Yeah, they shouldn't be fertilized. Yeah. So everybody out there, if you're going to do this, no uh, no fertilizer. Did we did we cover the, the number three gravel, the a half-inch bed of number three gravel for no, the— with- we had an exchange, but we didn't talk about it. Yeah, so that was the other that was the other tip that I've gone ahead and done. So I've got uh, on the rack that I will I'm eventually going to move them to. I've got uh, a couple fifteen gallon tanks, and I went ahead and put. I picked up some kind of number three gravel, and and I sent you a picture of it, which I I think is probably the closest thing. So it's Estes Shallow Creek gravel is the, is the name of it, and they're. You know, decent size little gravel um, gravel size. I'd say it's kind of medium. They're not like large rock boulders, and they're not like the super fine gravel. Um, so I've got. Can that, can that gravel be stared up? If you to drain that into a bucket, can you stir that up pretty? Uh, oh yeah. Your hand. Oh yeah. Okay, that's good. So I've got. What I do is, when I want to collect eggs from any kind of killifish, I do this with liar tails. Well, I don't. I used to raise a lot of killies, even North Branchus recolvi. I used to raise thousands of those i just use number three aquarium gravel even maritacora lacordae people might think it's a diver but it's not those fish that dive like white eye long appendage things like that those are deep divers all right you can use a container and put five four or five inches of uh, peat in there 
where now they use that, uh, what is that, coconut fiber. And then they have a cap on it with a hole cut on the top so they can go in. They'll learn where to go. Those are divers. That's different. But most of the fish will just skim the surface of the uh, gravel. And they will de deposit. Even the Maritacoralacorda, as I started to say, you would think that was a diver. But it's not. I had the Lacorda going for about 10 years. Not an easy fish. I don't even know if anybody has them in the United States now. What they would may... make what would make one person think that that lacordae would be a diver? What is 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 it something in the body? Yeah, well, the body and a lot of people. They, as soon as they see annual fish, they associate that with divers. Not all annual fish are divers. Mm. Some just skip the surface, just like uh, there's one. And I don't know what the uh, it used to be. Sinolevius bittereye. I know they changed the name now. Uh, oh, it's Placelevius. Is it Placelevius? I don't remember. They just skim. They, they, they're in midwater, and they, they got the egg down. I had them going, too, for a while. It's a beautiful fish. So, but the Glarus, all those fish, I breed over a number three aquarium gravel. My gravel goes back <laughs> 60 years plus. I still got the same gravel I had for many years. But what I do is I drain it into a bucket. And you could do this whenever you, once a month if you're going to change water. I drain all the gravel into a bucket, and then I stir the bottom up. And then, of course, the gravel sinks very fast because it's so heavy, and the eggs are still floating downward. And then, the, and then with a figure eight motion, with a, a let me see what, what kind of a net. You know the nets that they sell today. Uh, you don't want a brine shrimp net. It'd be too much resistance. I think it's a, it's a, a step up from. Uh, uh, let me see. Uh, there's different size nets. I, I think it's a green net. It's got, uh, mm -hmm. I would say, about a, a 16th of an inch opening or lower, 330 seconds. And in a figure eight motion, as the eggs are beginning to float downward, you can collect the eggs. And you do that until you don't get any legs any longer. And then uh, put them in that 20-gallon tank, as I said. Or if you have another tank, just keep filtration on it. You don't have to, you don't have to pack them in peat moss. And you don't have to breed them over peat moss. The, the only thing I don't like about peat moss, and a lot of guys say, oh, I raised something. Well, they can. The only thing you don't like about peat moss, if, if you're breeding them in, in, over peat moss, you're feeding them food, that the breed gets into it. And that may be a, a reason for failure, too, because mm -hmm. you've got organics that mix in with the peat moss, and you don't have a, a good atmosphere or another atmosphere, but you don't have a good surroundings for, uh, for egg development. So you're... You might be creating, uh, if you have some dead zones, you might be creating some uh, ammonia locked underneath, you know, or anaerobic bacteria in, mm -hmm. in dead zones. So uh, if you ever if you ever stayed stirred up peat moss in a bucket that wasn't used, <laughs> it's pretty it's pretty wicked. Nice. So let me get, let me get some clarification. So I just want to make sure that are, you're actually taking out all the gravel and then putting it in the bucket, I, or can I do a can I siphon I, it? Can I siphon it with yeah. a gravel vac? I siphon it out and into a bucket. The water, or also that you're, you're also sucking the gravel out too. You, I take the gravel and the water at the same time. Oh. The eggs are in between the gravel. The, the eggs are down. They, when they eject the egg, it, it can in, get in between the little crevices, and they're too mm -hmm. stupid to look for them. But if you breed them in a, in a mop, some people say, yeah, I got a mop, and I'm not getting any eggs. But they may be going in there, and they're eating the eggs. That's mm -hmm. why you're not getting anything. But if you use gravel, I mean, this has been my success. Somebody else may not have the same success, but I'm just telling you what I do. And I just drain the gravel in a bucket and then stir it up. And then in a figure eight motion with a net, 
uh, has uh, not too much resistance to it. And you can collect all the eggs and just can keep continue to do that until you, you think you have all the eggs you want and just put, put the eggs into a tank. Okay. Tank. So, so if you were to use one of the wider gravel vacs um, that, that don't suck up the gravel, are the eggs just a little bit too adhesive to the rocks to, to, to get sucked no. out in that? No, the eggs aren't adhesive at all. Uh, any of those, uh, some of the deep divers like Terralevius, they have very adhesive eggs. If you breed them over a peat moss or something like that, you may not find anything. You say, wait, where's the eggs? But if you look close and you put a light on the side, uh, you can see the eggs, because, but they, they have little little hooks on them, like and so the debris sticks to the egg and you can't really see them. Mm. Some have a little hook on there. On the on the egg, so you really can't see uh, you can't see the egg. Oh, by the way, and if you have them in peat moss, something I developed years ago, uh, a good way to, to check your peat moss. If if you have fish that you want to breed over peat moss and you want to see eggs, what I do is I take a handful and I put it in a in a tray, one of those shoebox trays, and I stir it up, and then I keep pouring the fines off. You just wait for a second, a couple seconds, let the heavy stuff sink. You keep pouring the fine stuff off until you only have the heavy stuff left behind, like heavy particles of peat, and then you can you can eyeball it, or we can see what they what they call uh, uh, what they call it when they uh, look at chicken eggs. There's a special word they have for it. See, see that's what happens when you <laughs> when you get in your 90s. You, you, your computer is so jammed full of information. You have to uh, I forget what they call it, but anyway. They call chicken eggs up to a light, and they can tell, you know, what kind of embryo is going on in there. And you can do the same thing with the uh, uh, doing this this method that I just said. You keep it, pouring the top off. It looks like keep they pouring. call it candling. You candle, candling. A, yeah, you candle a chicken. I that, thought it was going to be like a high, a very scientific term. No, but no, 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 it's just candling. <laughs> oh, that's cool. That's the word I wanted. Yeah, you yeah, said, yeah you candling. Said, that's the word. That's the word I was looking for. So, but uh, that's that's what you do. Yeah, because it's funny. I was going to go down a totally different path with just the minimal research that I had done. So I was actually going to go fully planted, you know, guppy grass and water sprite and just very bushy plants and do and do peat moss uh, for this. And so I'm glad that I connected with you for you to to give me this good advice of go down this path instead of trying to mess around with peat and planted no, tank and all peat, that stuff. Peat moss is too messy. Plus. You may not have the right, you know, peat moss comes in different pHs too, so you may not get the right peat moss. Uh, and I just don't like to fool with it. Uh, I I used to use it in my filters when I used to set up my tetras. I used to make peat filters, and then I used to age the water for a week. I used uh, uh, ionized, deionized water, and I used to let that age and get uh, like a nice amber color to it. Oh, another thing I forgot to mention what I discovered since I moved in this house, well, we're here 32 years now, 34 years. We had a, a black walnut tree on our property, and uh, that was just used to drive me nuts because I used to I used to do the grass myself then, you know. I had and and there'd be walnuts all over the ground <laughs> and they had green husk around them, you know. Uh-huh. And they would hit the lawnmower, the blades, and bang, and you hear bang. And uh, one day, some of the walnuts, I had a couple of gallon jars out there. I don't know why I had it. And somehow the walnuts got in there, and the, wal- and, and the water was jet black. And wow, look at this. And then I realized, hey, this is tannic acid. And then I did some research and found out that walnuts, uh, 
they actually get the walnut shells. I think there's a place in, in, in the Midwest, in Missouri or somewhere, they, or the colonists, or the colonists used walnuts. To, that's how they uh, dyed their furniture. You know, if they, uh, hmm. they wanted to color their furniture, that's what they used. They, uh, what's nut dye? What do they call it? Stain it. They used walnut shell for a stain. That's how they stain it. And then I found out that it's a, it's a wonderful astringent. And in colonist days, they actually drank that stuff because it was a dewormer and it was very good for medicinal purposes. But I found out that it's rich in tannic acid and you can make up a tannic acid. You want to make up black water. Boy, all you have to do is you take the green husks and you chip them. I gave a friend of mine a whole bag of walnuts. He wanted them. He's, a, he's kind of a uh, pure food advocate. Let's call him that way. He's, or he likes organics. And I said, do me a favor and keep all the chips that you take off the green stuff. And he gave me a whole bag of them. And just let them turn brown. You let them age. And then the green is lost. And uh, you can have a whole bag of these chips. All you need is a little handful. And you put a water in, the water turns black right away. It's very fast. It's almost like a powder. So uh, that works great, too. It's rich in uh, tannic acid. Of course, my... My walnut tree went down. It, uh, it it crashed, and I had to have it cut up. But I live in an area where there's a lot of walnut, so I can always pick them off the ground. But I still have a bag of walnut shells that have been aged. But there's another source of tannic acid. But it's you could use the peat pellets. The peat pellet works fine. Mm -hmm. What well, what would be an application in your fish room where you're like, all right, I gotta I gotta get out some uh, some tannic acid or some tannic water from from black walnuts. Well, you have to get black walnuts first. You have black walnut or, trees out. Well, what well, what would be your application? And actually, I know uh, in California, I grew up. One of my chores at uh, my my family business was to go around to the walnut trees and pick up the walnuts off the ground, and then I'd have to I'd have to shell them. So I'm yeah. pretty yeah, sure. No, yeah, you you have the English walnut mm. out there. Those are the ones everybody buys. No, these are the black walnuts. Let me look up this black walnuts. Yeah, it's a little different, and uh, they're pretty tough to break open. It takes a good sweep of the hammer or, mm. or a good nutcracker. Even a nutcracker, it's pretty. You have to have strong hands to break them over, or a vice and squeeze them. But doesn't look like much meat either compared no, to the English not, one. There's, there's not much meat in, but there's a lot of stuff on YouTube about black yeah. walnut. So, when, so when would when would Rosario use black walnut tannin water versus just peat tannin water? Well, I prefer I, I use the peat more. So I was going to if I was breeding again. And uh, because I, I really haven't done that much experimental work with the tannins from the black walnut, I have used it to hatch eggs out, and I have put it in, in tanks, you know, to color the water black. But I really haven't come to any conclusion mm. as far as what the advantage is. I don't think it's going to be much advantage. Because the one thing I like about the uh, what I like about the uh, uh, the peat moss. Pea moss actually starts as sphagnum moss. I did a lot of work with sphagnum moss. That works great. About uh, five miles from here, we have what they call a great swamp. That's the remnants of the great glaciers. 10,000 years ago, when the glaciers were down here in North America, they scraped out the bottom. So there's, there's a big swamp there. It's a beautiful natural place, and it's protected now. It's a state-protected uh, state, uh, area. And they have uh, boardwalks you can walk out. And 
and the place is loaded with sphagnum moss. I mean, the sphagnum moss is there by the tons. And I would go there. It's against the law, what I did. <laughs> but I used, to just re- <laughs> I used to just reach down. I mean, if you saw it, and one day I jumped off the boardwalk. The boardwalk is very shallow. I jumped off, and I had my camera with me. And some woman came by, and I guess she was one of the uh, volunteers. She said, you know, you shouldn't be down there. She says, That's, that area is very delicate. I said, well, you know, I, I want to take some close-up pictures. I'm going to do an article on, on sphagnum moss. She said, well, you shouldn't be down there. I said, well, I said, I'm just going to get a picture. So, all right. I said, well, I'll get up. And that's my, my only encounter. So I, what I did was I went to see the manager. I knew where the office was. I went to see the manager of the whole area. It's a big, it's a big swamp area. It's a beautiful place. A lot of wildflowers, things like that. A lot of wildlife. So I went to see the manager and I said, Hey, I said, I'm very interested in, in sphagnum moss. I'm doing some research with, uh, I had, a, I had a, I had to tell him a little bit what I was doing. I said, I working with certain fish species of fish and the sphagnum moss really encourages the fish to, to reproduce. I would like to get your permission to take to collect sphagnum moss if I, as I needed it, so he wrote out a letter for me in case anybody stopped me, that I could collect a square yard, which is a hell of a lot. Mm-hmm. But I never did follow up, and I had I, I probably have that letter in the car yet, but I never followed up on it. But uh, sphagnum moss is what I use for ant protectors, and uh, and I did that. That goes back sphagnum moss spawning goes back into the twenties and thirties. The guys here. Uh, the guy I learned it from was Tom Schubert. He was one of the real early pioneers. He was a great breeder from Pennsylvania. And uh, I think he lived in, in Camden, in New Jersey. You ever hear that Barbara Schuberti at the Gold Barb? You know the Gold Barb? Um, I could probably Google it and that might ring a bell, but no. Not at the top of my head. Well, there's a Gold Barb, and they call it Barbara Schuberti. And it's really a misnomer. It's not... Since it's a color morph, uh, you can't just name it that it's a different species. It's not. They just named it after Schubert. They call it Schubert's barb, but he happened to breed a lot of uh, those barbs in those days, and he got some that came out gold. And so he he fixed the strain, and so they were known as Schubert's. Well, I, I met him years ago. I was just a young guy myself, and he's he had sphagnum That's where I first learned he had sphagnum in his tanks. And he had a pair of uh, Ramarizai, uh, Epistogramma. They have, it was a different name now, I forgot. Uh, a, a male of which I had never seen before. I mean, he had a dorsal fin that went back to the tail. He was spectacular. But he had sphagnum in most of his tanks. That's how I got a, a, to find out about sphagnum moss. So, but there's a lot of areas in New Jersey, there's like 52 different species of sphagnum. In New Jersey's, but sphagnum is where where peat moss comes from. What happens is sphagnum grows each year, and it starts to develop more and more. And you get different layers of sphagnum moss, and as it compresses, it begins to turn to peat moss. Did you ever hear of the of the, uh, of the, the peat man from Sweden? Is it? You ever, you ever no. Seen no, I have not. They, yeah, no, they found a guy, and if you committed adultery two thousand years ago, they hung you. So they found this guy in Sweden. They found him in a peat bog, and there's pictures of him. You can find him. You might see him online. Oh, they, they found they found people like in England, right? Because they've got yeah. those bogs in in England. Yeah, well, they find England, those those preserved yeah. bodies. England and Ireland is loaded with peat. Yeah. yeah, 
That's true. And uh, but you can see a picture of this guy. He's well preserved, and he's preserved because it's a tannin, tannic acid. But that's all from from sphagnum moss. Now my son is married to an Irish girl. She's a wonderful girl. My daughter-in-law Mary, and uh, she her family is from Ireland, and she's first generation. And they've been back there. My son is back there, and even my grandkids went back with their parents, and they visited because she has a lot of relatives there, and they actually have. Peat so thick that's what they use for their fuel. Yep. They have tools that cut swaths of peat. Have you have you had what? the uh, have you had the peat smoked whiskeys? Do I have what? So the, what they'll do there is uh, I think one of the brands is Lagavulin, and they will actually they'll distill their whiskey, but the fuel source is the peat. And so it That's gives right. us it gives us this tremendous tremendous smoky flavor. And I've had it once or twice before. It's very it's a very unique experience. Yeah, no, they use peat for fuel there, and that's mm-hmm. what they. Because I think her uncle had a, uh, he's got several acres of land there, and uh, he he would distribute parcels to his kids. So they're all living in that area, you know. They're they're clannish, so naturally, they all have these peat cutters where they cut these squares out, and that's what they use for fuel. Mm-hmm. So sphagnum moss, I'm pretty sure that's that's somewhat readily available in like the reptile side of things. Can you? Is it safe to just take some of that reptile stuff and submerge it and just use that in your aquarium? You mean the dried stuff? Yeah, the dried stuff. If you just rehydrate it, or, do, yeah, or would that fall you, apart? You, I guess you could, but I think it would kind of fall apart, make okay. a mess. So you're actually I, you're collecting. I get the, and what I did back in the when the Empertetra first came in in 1960. I threw a, a handful of peat moss in there, not peat moss, the sphagnum moss. And, and then I used to go at night with a flashlight or my hand lamp, and I used to look. Because that's when you see things happening, you know, in the evening when, a, when it's dark. And you can see things that go on, and I'm looking in a, a sphagnum or in a tank with the sphagnum moss and the emperors. I said, what's that darting around there? I see little babies, and that's how I learned. That if you just leave P, uh, emperor tetras in sphagnum, because they don't have big spawns. They spawn every day. If you feed them, they're like chickens. A chicken only lays an egg a day. It depends on how much you feed them. And then you'll, you'll, you'll give you an egg every day. Well, that's the same with emperors. You might get 14 or 15 eggs, but you have to feed them constantly. And over a period of time, you'll get quite a few uh, emperors, you know, and that's, that's the way I bred them. Hmm. I just had them over sphagnum moss and just leave them alone. And they, and they wouldn't touch them. And when they got to a certain size, they'd come out and they'd swim with their parents, even though they're tiny. I mean, they're fully finned and all that. But by that time, you're like, uh, I would say maybe half inch long, something like that, or three eighths. And you'll see them swimming with the parents. Mm-hmm. The parents won't bother at all. But a lot of tetras will do that. Yeah. Uh, they will spawn and spag them, and a, and a young will grow up with the parents. Well, I, I hope that I hope that people listening to this that are even remotely interested in breeding Killies or, or Tetras, they're going to have to go back and listen to this episode, you know, three or four times. You can fast forward through my parts, but all of this knowledge that you're sharing, Rosario, of your, you know, your your decades of experience with these fish is just, it's just, it's awesome. It's awesome, and it's, you know, it's fantastic. Um, I've had you on here now for about an hour, and I want to be very respectful of your time. Actually, over an hour, like an hour and ten minutes. So um, I'm going to let... Uh- let me tell you a quick story. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, 
talk about time. I could probably talk for eight or nine hours. Well, we're going to do this again. We're definitely going to do this again because we need to talk about the uh, Barbados, Corey. We need to talk more about, um, you know, other places that you've been to. Like, I, I, I want to, you know, if, you, if, you're, if you're willing, I want to know, I want to further dive into Rosario and all the stuff that you've done and, you know, just all of your insights that, um, you know, short of this book or the talks that you've given, which I'm not even sure how many of your talks have been recorded, but you know, for, for all of this wealth of knowledge that you have, trying to get some type of an avenue or another avenue, rather, for people to, to hear directly from you that, you know, I, I, I would imagine there's probably a handful of people on the West Coast that have actually been live to see you talk, you know? Yeah, yeah well, you know, I, I, I started to tell you what happened was when I came back from Brazil in 1977 with that six-week uh, trip with Weitzman that we took when we had a geographic grant, uh, I had so many slides uh, I was a member of the North Jersey Aquarium Society, or no, uh, the Metropolitan Area Killifish Association. In fact, I'm still a recording secretary. <laughs> I've been doing that for over 30-some years. Of course, with the virus now, I haven't been attending uh, because of, you know, since I'm in my 90s now, I, I have to be careful uh, for my wife and I both. But at, at that time, I spoke. I don't think anybody ever did that before. I spoke. I gave the program for eight or nine months in a row. I was the guest speaker. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> well, if you've got if you've got all the information, why not? Yeah, well, I did. I spoke for eight. I gave programs for eight or nine months in a row. I was the guest speaker, and of course, I was the member. Yeah. So. Well, you're you're a dream for me because one, I'm I'm going to learn from you, and two, you've got all this wealth of information, and you're not you're not afraid to talk. You know, you you've you've talked, no. you, you know, you've given so many presentations that this is just second nature for you. And all I have to do is hit the record button, sit back, uh, and ask a question every once in a while. And and I'm just trying to soak up as much of this for my own personal selfish fish room reasons as it is. So I'm I I'm all for it, Rosario. If you uh. You know, as many as many sessions as uh, you know you'll have with me. Um, and again, I'm just uh, indebted to you and indebted to Joe Ferdenzi for to help make this happen. You know, I I, I have a program on a uh, what do you call a little thing you put in your pocket? I forgot. You know, you plug into the computer and and all the whole program is on there. What do you call oh, that uh, again? Like the USB drive. Yeah. I have one that I made for NEC last year or two years ago, the Northeast Council. Mm-hmm. I gave a program up there, and I have it on that. And I was talking. Do you know Nancy and 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 her husband, the Olsons from up in Spokane? Do you know them? Is it is it um, Kathy? Kathy Eric, and Eric and Kathy. Eric and Kathy. Yep. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. They've been. Uh, I've. You know. I've actually had them in my fish room. I've been to their fish room. I. I actually gave Kathy and Eric all of the the apistos that I brought back from Peru, and I think Kathy's having some good success with them. But yeah, I love. I love the Olsons. Yeah, I. I talked. You know, they uh, made a recording. I don't. Did you ever see that the uh, recording they made or took the recordings of uh, what was the name of that? The Legends of the Aquarium. Did you ever see that? I don't. It may, I wonder if they have it on our GSAS website for our fish club. Oh, I don't know, yeah. because the Olsons made that. They, they were the ones responsible for it. And she interviewed me, and I remember, I still have it. I have I have the uh, discs. I have, I think, two or three discs. Let's see. And there were several of us, Aquas, some of the guys are gone now, but uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, Ray Lucas is the one that sponsored it. I'm going to I'm gonna have to ask him about that. Yeah, you're going to ask them. Okay. And, but anyway, they... Uh, 
she asked me if I would do a program, do one of those uh, Zoom things. And I, I said, I have that. You know, I should do that. Maybe, maybe even use it for you. I mean, I don't, I don't know how to program it. Though. I'm, like I said, I'm not a computer savvy guy. You have to be young, you know, to know that. Well, like if, if my grandkids and my grandkids, they know how to do that. I don't. I, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, right now you're using an iPad and you're using FaceTime. You're, you're basically there. You just need to download the program. And I, I would say after this, after this episode publishes, you'll probably have a couple clubs reach out to you that will just say, Hey, Rosario, here, download this app. And join us at this time, and they'll do like a Q and A session with you. I think that would be amazing if 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 you were able to schedule a couple talks with fish clubs where, um, you know, somebody somebody would be the moderator. So it'd be like in my position on their computer, they have all of the members that are typing in questions, and they would ask them to you. So it's going to be, you know, you're not facing this onslaught of questions coming at you. It'd be very metered, and then you could just talk and answer those questions. I I think that would be an amazing opportunity. Yeah, well, I did. I, I kind of discussed that with Eric, and well, actually, I talked to Kathy more than Eric, and uh, we did discuss something like that. And I kind of promised them, but we never. Uh, it was never fulfilled, so uh, mm. we never, we never finished talking it over and making a, a, a this thing come to fruition. You know? <laughs> well, I'll text him. I'll text him once we get off and say, "Hey, Rosario's still open to doing a uh, a talk for us or a Q and A session or whatever it might be." I, like I said, I don't know how to. I don't know how to do it. I don't know how to handle it. Oh, all you have to honestly, it would be it, it, they could they could make it so it's just like how you and I are talking right now. It would you could just sit back on your yeah. couch, relax. Yeah, no, she told me says Eric is really sharp at oh, that he stuff. Is. Oh, yeah, I know, I know yeah. he is. Yeah, because they did a great job. You have to look up that legends thing. I will. Yeah, I'll ask him about that too. Well, Rosario, I thank you so much, sir. And uh, you and I, I definitely want to, if you have me, if you'll have me rather, um, you know, I, I want to connect with you again and, and uh, you know, talk more about Barbados and, and all sorts of other good stuff. So, Rosario, thank you so much again. I appreciate it, sir. Anytime.